Can you imagine yourself swimming over 52 hours in a black ocean full of lethal threats? This time I meet a woman who broke a record of 110.8 miles or 178 kilometers at the age of 64. So what will a next shore be? Diana Niad, welcome to my podcast. Lydia, thank you very much. I'm honored. What makes a woman to do her fifth attempt to swim from Cuba to Florida at the age of 64? It was a, it was a profound dream. You know, it had, it had nothing to do with swimming. When I was in my 20s, I was an ocean swimmer. And all those other beautiful lakes and rivers and oceans, you know, the Bay of Naples in Italy, it goes from Capri, the Isle of Capri to this, to the coast, the Amalfi coast of Naples. You know, it, it's glorious. And I, uh, I, I, I took a lot of pride and also joy and uh, building of character with all those swims. But Cuba was something bigger than that. Cuba also always for me was... The, the idea of chasing something so difficult, so probably impossible, that it was going to make me find out who I was, find the grit of who I was. So I didn't make it when I was 28. Uh, I tried again uh, to train for it when I was 29, 30, but we couldn't get into Cuba. And so it wasn't a matter of, oh, I'm going to go swim 100 miles over there in the Mediterranean or in the Aegean or, you know, in the Gulf of Thailand. I didn't care about any of those. I cared about Cuba, that particular geography, that distance between that forbidden land and the United States. And because it was considered the toughest swim on the planet for any swimmer. So I, I didn't make it. And then I had taken off all those years as a sports broadcaster, but that swim, that swim ate at me. I want to go back and chase that big dream. But it's not only the distance, it's, it's what is in that ocean. And how many hours are we talking 52 about? 52 hours, 54 minutes. So very clear. And oh, don't forget the 18 seconds. Anybody can swim 52 hours, 54 minutes, but that last 18 seconds, that could kill you. So uh, it was 52 hours, 54 minutes, 18 seconds. But Diana, we are still talking about the fifth attempt. And you knew about the sharks, the Gulf Stream, the jellyfishes, and all those things who are actually lethal. And still you sort of build up your uh, courage to do this again for the fifth time. That is what really bothers me. How, how can you motivate yourself to do it for the fifth time? You know, Lydia, I think it all revolves around a word, resolve. And... I think when a human being has resolve, whether it's a, a let's say you have a, uh, someone dying in your family, um, you either resolve to beat it and you're going to get past it and live, or you resolve that you're going to come to peace with it and your, your friend is going to die. Um, I had a resolve about this swim, and I, and I think the reason it worked, that resolve was so deep for me, was because it wasn't, as I said, just an athletic event. It was a life event. It was a, it was a proof of a life. I feel proud of that person who who uh, would train that hard and not be afraid, you know, out there and lead a team who wanted to do this together. So all of those things were uh, were life affirming. 
You know, they were they were truly something I can live with. Again, I don't sit around um, thinking of the victory. I, I never do. I never sit and think, oh, I remember that day when I was walking up on that beach stumbling and I made it. I was the winner. I was the big champion. I, don't, I could if I wanted to. I see the film and I say, oh, that's right. I remember that. But I don't remember that. What I remember is the resolve, that feeling inside that says it doesn't matter if you're knocked down and knocked down and knocked down again, you're going to get up. You're going to get up and you're going to try again. You know, that, that's, that's, the, that's the life stuff that this was about. Not, oh, I'm going to make it and my name's going to go in the record books. It's not about that. Could you just try to explain what the situation is when you're in the water, black water, black sky, black everything, and uh, still you're not completely alone. You have a team. Uh, but tell us a little about the, what the danger, si- dangerous uh, situations, uh, what, what can occur? Well, it is a vast, epic ocean, and it's a dangerous ocean between Cuba and Florida. You have a very powerful Gulf Stream tugging you. You actually feel it while you're swimming. It's tugging you to the right, to the right, to the right, to the east, um, and you have to put your head down. You know, you're never going to beat it. It's too powerful for the little human body, but you cannot let it slow you down. You've got to keep going north, 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 whereas you could take another swim. Let's say you're going to do the English Channel. Um, You know, I, I admire anybody who's done the English Channel, but the truth is, You don't have much choice. You could go over on your back and sing a few songs and uh, look up at the sky and you're still going to go in the same direction you're supposed to go or you're going to stay still. In this swim from Cuba, you can never take a take a moment's rest without being dragged off course, seriously off course. So you have to constantly power. These are dangerous sharks. These are the sharks of the tropics. The oceanic white tip is a very dangerous, fast, hungry shark out there. But were you just lucky when you when you didn't uh, see any sharks, or what, no? We what, saw many. You know, we did. It's not, I don't know why like you, you thought we didn't see sharks. No, they came up. But but my team is there to to push them, to punch them in the nose, and push them down and get them away from me. So it's not a matter of luck. It's a matter of an intelligent, brave team. We have a. We have on the bottom of the two kayaks, one one behind me and one off to the right, a device called the shark shield. It emits a big elliptical field of electricity. Some sharks, if they're extremely hungry, will swim through that electricity. They don't care. They're going to take whatever it is on the surface. Others, it bothers their sonar. They have what they call ampullae on their snouts. It bothers them to the point that they it's not worth risking their lives to go through it, to eat whatever that is. And my divers, my divers, especially in the pitch black of night, in the day, not so much. They can stand up top, top, top of the boat. The ocean is so clear in the Gulf Stream. You can see for miles, beautiful blue, and you can see a dark object underneath. So they could see it. They would dive in, swim out toward the shark, move it away, get it curious about them instead of me. But at night, I mean, absolutely pitch black. You could hold your hand up and can't see it in front of your face. They would dive under 
under me all night long and put their bodies between the sharks and me. So it wasn't a matter of fact that we never saw them. We saw them all the time. But uh, I can't be afraid. I mean, I'm tired. I'm turning my head 60 times a minute. I'm not going to see anything. So what if I were afraid? You know, it's like asking a skier who's going to go 80 miles an hour down a mountain on two little sticks. You say, aren't you afraid? You say, well, you know the danger. You could become paralyzed. You could die. But they can't feel the fear. Once they're going to do it, they can't feel it. So I, I couldn't be I couldn't uh, be successful if I was going to feel the fear. You understand the dangers. You prepare an intelligent protocol with your team, and then you believe you're going to be all right. So the divers also protected you from jellyfishes? No, who are, no. no you can't. The, the jellyfish you don't see, the box jellyfish, you know, there are thousands of species of jellyfish. I'd venture to say that none of them are pleasant. None of them. You don't like being stung by jellyfish. You just don't. But there's only one that will kill kill you on contact, and that's the box jellyfish. You can't believe how so the, the sugar cube you use to put in your tea, that's the size of the box jellyfish. It's a tiny little animal with not a very long tentacle. When you feel the tentacle, for instance, if you feel it on your face or on your lips, it feels like a hair, like as if a piece of your hair with the wind had blown across your lips. That's how thin it is, and it is potent. It, it is the most potent venom. There's no snake, no eel, no ray that can kill on contact like the box jellyfish, but the divers can't see them. Nobody sees them really. At, 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 at night, they have a little bit of, of fluorescence. So if you were diving in very calm water um, and you had a full-on protective suit, sometimes they can see them. But they're uh, on our swim, when we're plowing through the water at two and 2.5 miles an hour, we don't see anything. And the divers can't see them either. So you better have some protective gear on because you're not going to see them and be able to swim around them. First of all, there are millions of them. They swarm together. So what would be the chances that you'd see one up ahead and you'd say, oh, there must be millions. I'll swim that far around. It, it could never happen. You're going to swim through them and you have to decide what you're going to wear that's legal. You can't wear any neoprene or any sort of flotation. You can't wear anything that's for warmth. So you wear a very, very thin, thin, thin suit. It's called a uh, stinger suit. And the, really the whole point of it is it doesn't give you warmth. It's that those tentacles can't penetrate the fiber and they can't get to your skin. And then I wore a, a silicone mask. It was very difficult to swim in, difficult to breathe, but it was protective. So you just, you have to decide you're going to get through them. Everybody anybody who's been stung by the box jellyfish before and lived has said, never again. I'm never going back in that water. But you were stung, weren't you? Yeah. Massive stings. And I decided to, that's where resolve comes. I could say, I'm lucky I lived. I don't want to put myself through that again or my loved ones. But I decided to go and get a silicone mask because we had the whole body protected. Surgeon's gloves on the hands, the, uh, the stinger suit on the body, uh, little thin, thin, thin booties, which are allowed on the feet with tape wrapped around the ankles and the wrists so there could be no showing skin. But the face was hard to protect because you need, to, you need your mouth to breathe. And how are you going to cover your mouth and still be able to open it? So we finally had a prostheticist. He works with burn victims. So if somebody is horribly burnt from a house fire or from the war, a grenade, he 
makes them these beautiful silicone masks that they can wear until their surgery, their skin grafts. So he made one for me. It took us nine months, and it wasn't easy to swim in. You know, I I, uh, I defy anybody to try to swim all night with that mask on. It's it's very difficult to breathe and and keep it on. How about sleep? How about um, toilet pauses? What, what, what do you... Well, <laughs> toilet, you, you know what? Kids love it. If I go to speak to seven-year-olds, they all start laughing. And I know what they're laughing about. They well, That's the question they want to ask. They laugh and they say, excuse me, how did you go to the bathroom? Well, you're out in the ocean. What are you going to do? And they say you just, you let it fly. Um, sleep, there is no sleep. I mean, there's no place to sleep. You're not allowed to touch the boat. You're not, you know, it's not like you're going to go on your back and go to sleep. You're in the ocean. And you don't want to stop much because now you're getting dragged off course. So uh, you are in sleep deprivation, but that's the least of it. You know, who cares? You were an athlete almost from the start, from from a very young girl. And uh, uh, the person who was a god to you, really, he was the one also who said, uh, you're going to win, Diana, you're the best, and he encouraged you. But he also was the one who sexually abused you. And I know that you've been uh, writing about this in your uh, biography and, and spoken about it, but how do you think about that period today when we actually have a lot of campaigns talking about Me Too and actually uh, talk about this kind of uh, situations? You know, Lydia, I'll tell you the truth. Uh, it, it, it makes me so damn angry. You know, a, a, a person who is in charge of your well-being, first you have your parents, if you're lucky, you have good parents, and then you maybe have someone from your church or your school or your sport or music or whatever who, they, as you as a young person, they're looking to give you confidence and to help you learn what's right and what's wrong and help you be strong and happy so that when you go out into the world, when it comes, let's say, college time, you're you're ready, you have all the skills and And oddly enough, I think it's part of the syndrome. Uh, I hear it from now thousands of people now that I'm in the movement and trying to lead toward, you know, curtailing the incidence of sexual abuse in the United States anyway. Um, a lot of these people demean you and they make sure that you feel lesser about yourself. So you feel you're doing something wrong and you're the one who has to be quiet. Uh, you don't have any power in it. So the same coach who said to me very first day I ever swam, you're going to be the best in the world. And any kid just soars to hear this. You feel magic that you're going to be the best in the world. He's the same one that once he started sexually abusing he said you're never going to be a champion you're 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 not a you're not a good talent you're never going to make it and uh you know to, to try to make me feel worse about myself and doubt myself and you hear it all the time from these young people um who have been abused and even the older ones you know people in their 20s and 30s who are preyed upon sexually one of the things people do is to degrade you and all of a sudden you you you've lost your power in life. You wind up being silent. You don't tell anybody and you feel that it's all been your fault. So they're they're very uh, clever sociopaths, these people. My coach was charismatic. People loved him. He's dead now. But um, I did too. I mean, I don't talk about love, but I'm talking about, you know, I just thought he was the cat's meow. He was, he was, he was strong. He was fun. He was positive. And it just... It had to be me who was the wrong one, you know, when he when he 
when he took me and did all this sexual abuse, I was frozen. I couldn't move. I was confused. I did feel degraded. And it took me a long time to talk about it. Have you and, ever confronted him? Yeah. Oh, yes. Many times in the years I tried to prosecute him. And I had corroborators. But it's another part of the syndrome is many of these powerful people, um, they know the mayor. They know the police chief. They're, uh, you know, they're protected by the system. Whereas the victim um, has everything against her. You'll see in rape trials, almost always the corroborators, one woman was raped and it turns out there were seven that we know of who were raped by the same man. By the time that woman goes to court, all the others, the six others, they don't want to talk. They're embarrassed. They're afraid. Um, they don't want to bring their family down now all these years later. So, um, oh yes, I confronted him many times, never admitted to it. Um, uh, said I was crazy, and uh, so you know, it's it's not my position to uh, to find justice anymore against him. Although he is in the swimming hall of fame, and I'm not the one. Many people are coming to my rescue now, saying you got to get that guy out of the swimming hall of fame. Uh, but I, I'm more into the movement now. I, I want to see if we can't make changes, cultural shifts in America, to see that this can happen less and less frequently. How can we encourage women, but also men? Because not only women are being sexually abused by men, there are also women who are not actually saints. Yeah, no, so, so of uh, course. I would say that the numbers, the math that we know is that it's largely men abusing both boys and girls. See, there's a, there's a, uh, there's no difference. If you're a child and you're you're looking to someone with great admiration, and then that person betrays you and and confuses you, and you know you're you you know we parents would try to teach you it's your body. Don't let anybody touch you unless you know. Uh, we call it a, a phrase in in English against our will. So whether you're a boy or a girl, if this is not your choice and you're not in full, and as a child you have no choice you know you could be 14 I was very strong at 14 strong will strong personality but I was not yet capable of making those decisions all that sexual activity was new to me I didn't want it with this coach um, and as I said I was I was demeaned and degraded through it it was a it was a terrifying part of my youth and um, Do you so we, we are making progress but when you say it's, it's still going on I think we're just beginning to discover how much it's going on You know, we, we don't know yet. I'm starting an archive in the United States. It's called the National Sexual Abuse Archive, and it's called Against Our Will Archive, so that anybody wants to come and write, they're a survivor. They're going to come and write or speak. They can do video if they want and tell about their story. So that's the first thing. And I know in Sweden, the Me Too campaign is very strong as well. Speak up. The first step we need to make, you know, it's like any epidemic. If an infectious disease in Africa is happening, Ebola. The first thing the doctors do is find out how far reaching is the epidemic? Who is it affecting? How many people? In what countries? Uh, what, what socioeconomic? What racial background? What age group? All of that. And once we know more about the epidemic, where is it? How much is it? Then we go in to say, how can we fix it? Right now, we're still in stage one. It's just starting to happen in America. Most people are afraid to speak up. And now the Me Too movement and my national argument archive are going to give people a place to say, I'm going to speak up. I'm sick of, I'm, I'm now 80 years old, a woman says, and I never told anybody that my father started molesting me when I was three. Three years old? It shouldn't be. 
It shouldn't be. So we're going to start first speaking up. The next part is to change it, to have parents say to that little three-year-old, if anyone ever looks at you funny, touches you someplace in your private parts, you come tell me right away. You know, we're going to start that now. Is this your next shore? You, you could say so. I mean, I, I, uh, I, I'm going to take this on in a national way, but I also, um, you know, really believe in the in the beauty and the power of feeling fit. You know, I've been fit my whole life. It makes me feel like I, I can do anything, confident and walk down the street like I own it. And so I've started a movement with my buddy Bonnie called Ever Walk. And we're starting to, you know, most Europeans walk everywhere every day. And I was in I was in New York City, walked all the time. Most Americans don't walk anywhere. They're going to get a newspaper that's 300 meters down the road. They get in the car and drive there. So we are a driving culture and we're a screen culture like the rest of the world now. But um, Americans have become extremely sedentary. So that's really my immediate other shore is ever walk. Um, but the sexual abuse archive is a, let's just say I have two shores. I'm swimming toward Two shores now. <laughs> uh, finally, who do you listen to or look upon where you want to get inspired? You know, there are so many people, but the truth is, I think that a lot of um, public figures don't necessarily look toward other public figures. I admire Michelle Obama. Um, I admire, there's an astronaut named Sonny Williams who's brilliant. Um, but I admire people who are never going to be famous. You're never going to know their names because they find their own true grit and they do the right thing. There's a woman in my neighborhood. She lost her husband to cancer. And all of a sudden, she's only 28 years old and she has three little kids. She's never worked because they had a type of marriage where she was going to be the caretaker, raise the children. And then one day when the children were raised, she could do whatever she wanted to and the husband would support her. Well, now he's gone. And so... She, when another tragedy happened in our neighborhood, she's the one struggling economically, trying to take care of these three kids, trying to figure it out. She's the one who comes around to everybody's house in the neighborhood. She has a big clipboard and she says, Diana, we got a couple down the street. They're in trouble. Um, the husband has a disease now. We need to get dinner on their back porch. I just bought a big freezer and I put it on their back porch. And see the list here? You are these Tuesdays. I don't care if you're the little rock star of the neighborhood and you're away a lot. You get somebody else to do it. But on these Tuesdays of 2018, you're going to have dinner on that guy's back porch, okay? Well, How come she's the one? She's the one who lost her husband. She's the one who doesn't have any time, any resources, because she has a heroic spirit. Well, now, I admire that woman. So, you know, I have a friend uh, who died of cancer, and she was young. She also had three children, and she was... She had not a moment of self-pity. You know, maybe with the door closed at night, she cried, but not in front of the rest of us. She was just like, we're going to beat this. I'm going to the best doctors in the world. I'm going to eat the right things. I'm going to find out about this cancer. I'm going to be smarter than this cancer. And in the end, when she didn't 
win the battle. She found grace. She found a way to say goodbye to her children and leave them in a good place, that they're going to chase their own dreams and live because of her. Um, I just, I admired her fight, and then I admired her grace in giving it up to the universe. So those are the people I admire, honestly, more than Bill Gates and Melinda Gates at this point give 99% of their wealth. They give it away to charity, mostly infectious diseases. I mean, of course I admire that. But, you know, Bill Gates is going to get plenty of admiration. I'd rather admire the woman down the street. True. Thank you very much, Diana Nayad. And I hope you'll get to, to reach your other shore. Thank you, Lydia. <laughs> I appreciate it. <laughs> 